I'm looking forward to staring directly into the sun with you for the next few moments, and I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1 to see the brightest light in the universe. We're continuing our new series, relatively new series, the Gospel of John. We're in the first chapter. We'll be here for a little while, then the pace will pick up once we hit verse 19, but we're intentionally taking our time through the first 18 verses because it really introduces to us all the themes that we're going to encounter So we want to be prayerful and patient as we let these truths seep in to our souls. So John chapter 1, the brightest light in the universe, is introduced to us in verses 4 and 5, which will be our portion for today. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I'm going to read it at least a couple times. Hear the word of the living God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. One more time. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light, present tense, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let's pray pray together again before we barge in to these glorious truths. Father, we ask that you would give us the psalmist's prayer which your spirit inspired that we would be able to say personally, corporately as a church, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Be our light, Lord. Let us pray with another psalm. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Would you give us the life and the light of the Lord Jesus today? We ask this in his name. Amen. So the truth John is driving at in the first 18 verses, though it contains incomprehensible wonder, beyond what you and I for the rest of eternity will be able to fully understand. The truth John is driving at in those first 18 verses are contained, I believe, in what our pastor Tommy Evans We'll be preaching to us a couple of weeks from now, Lord willing, in verse 12. The point of the first 18 verses is that this one and him alone gives us the right to become children of God. And so like two mighty surges that lead to that volcanic eruption of truth, he can make you God's child, you get the first 10 verses, he's the eternal Logos who created everything, in himself is life, he is the light of all, John testified about him, his own people didn't receive him even though he created them and came to live among them, that's the first 10 verses, and then 14 to 18, he tabernacled among us, he showed us the glory of God, he's full of grace and truth, he alone exegetes God to you, he shows you God. Both of those two mighty surges of lava erupt into 
the truths of verses 11 through 13 that he gives you the right to become God's child. So I just don't want to lose that all these majestic truths about Jesus are not for your theological file cabinet. They're for your eternal destiny. And in our meditation together today, on God's Word. We want to zero in with prayer-filled meditation. And, and by the way, I just love it. The clamor, the, the littles, the olders, the news, the familiars. But in the middle of all this, let's meditate together. That's prayer-filled attention on the truth that's contained in verses 4 and 5. Number one, in Him was life. L-I-F-E. John uses that word, life, for the first time in his gospel in this verse, but he proceeds to use it 35 more times in the remaining verses of this gospel. 36 times, clearly a heavy emphasis for John. That's more than double any other New Testament book. In fact, one quarter, 25% of all the uses of that word in the entire New Testament are in John's gospel. So that's clearly a big focus, and here's his first use of it. All of the life, what John is trying to get at, all of the life that he is going to unpack 35 more times in this gospel is bound up in Jesus. So let's just say right out of the gate that there is an infinite gulf. There's a Grand Canyon of infinite proportion between living and existing. Rocks exist. Most of humanity exists. Only in Christ is there life. All of the life that John is going to be talking about 35 more times after this verse is bound up in Jesus. I'll say it as clearly as I know how. If you don't have Jesus... You may have a lot, but you are totally bankrupt of everything that matters. From forever, life has been, verse 4 says, in Him. What a prepositional phrase. In the Logos, verse 1. In the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to put this in a double negative. I'm about to fail the English class, the grammar class, but I'm doing it on purpose. John is saying that there has never not been life in Christ. According to verse 1 and 2, and according to verse 3, the Creator Jesus is the one in whom life exists. From eternity, there has been life in concert with the Father and with the Spirit. The eternal God has lived forever And Jesus has been an eruption of life. John's focus in verse 4, I don't believe is the same as the focus of verse 3. He's not only saying, I don't believe, that all of the created order, verse 3, by Him all things exist, and apart from Him nothing came into being that's come into being. Jesus made you. Jesus made His own mom. Jesus made everything you'll ever see. Jesus made the invisible realm, the things you'll never see. 
Jesus made the angelic, including the ones who became demonic. Jesus created Satan, heaven and hell, the new heavens, new earth. Everything is made by him. I don't think that's the emphasis of verse 4. Though it is true that any life that exists outside of God was created by Jesus, it owes its origin to him. The breath that you are now borrowing was given to you by Jesus, including the lungs into which you inhale it. He made you. He has rights over you. He can demand anything he wants of you. He's the creator. You're the created. Not only is your origin owing to Christ entirely, your continuation is entirely dependent upon him as well. Anything that has life, I believe this is verse 3. I'm going to tell you what I think verse 4 is. Anything that has life, as we saw last week in our look at verse 3, is at Christ as the creator. Anything that has life owes its source and its ongoing sustainability in heaven, in hell, and in between to Jesus. That's clear from Colossians chapter 1. For by him, Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And here comes verse 17 of Colossians 1. And in him, all things hold together. Nothing lives outside of Jesus. Nothing. If Jesus ceased to do, Colossians 1.17, all things hold together in him, the universe would disintegrate instantaneously if he failed to do Hebrews 1 3 by the rhema the spoken word of his power to tell the universe to stay put to tell all those mighty stars which are millions of times bigger than our sun which is millions of times bigger than our earth if Jesus told anyone if if he ceased to tell any of those to stay put or any of the microorganisms down at the bottom of the deepest trenches of the sea to be or the parakeet that lives in the jungles of the Amazon, if he stopped telling it to be and to remain, it would fall into instant decomposition. He upholds, Hebrews 1-2, all things by the word of his power. I think that's verse 3's point. I don't think that's verse 4's point. Nothing lives outside of Jesus. I agree with Martin Luther of yesteryear, I agree with J.C. Ryle, host of contemporary and historic Christian Bible interpreter, scholars, and lovers of Jesus, who take the focus of the phrase, in him was life, that's our first point, to mean spiritual life. It doesn't disregard everything from verse 3. It ups the ante of verse 3. Ryle interprets that little phrase, in him was life, this way, put on your listening ears. Christ alone is the source of all life to the souls of men. Whether in time or eternity, he was the creator of all things, verse 3, and he's also the author of the new creation, verse 4, spiritual life. So in John's Gospel, I've mentioned this is a predominant theme 36 times and totally in keeping with his expressly stated main point, I believe verse 4 is about spiritual life. What's the main point of the whole Gospel of John? Let's never lose sight of the forest for the trees. John 20, 31. 
Every syllable, every verse is written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in His name. That's what He's talking about. Spiritual life. This is so replete. I'm not going to give you all 36, but let me give you about six or seven. John 3.16, Jesus came and died. Why? So that you would have eternal life. John 5.40, only those who come to Jesus by faith have life. 6.51, He gave His flesh for the life of the world. Clearly John's talking about some kind of unique dynamic or dimension of life. John 10.10, Jesus came so that you would have abundant life. John 11, the Lord of life raised Lazarus from the dead as a picture and a parable of a real life situation and a real person's human uh, uh, biography in order to give us a parable of the life that he infuses into everyone who comes to him by faith. John 11, 25, John 14, 6, we could just go on and on. He calls himself the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's what I believe John's talking about in verse 4. One of the precious names of Jesus worthy of a lifetime of serious contemplation and prayer-filled meditation. One of those precious names of Jesus in the New Testament is Prince of Life. It's found in Acts chapter 3. Prince of Life. It's actually written in an oxymoronic kind of way. A conundrum of syllables creating a phrase that should baffle us. You put to death the prince of life. It's supposed to mess with you. When we're told that he's the prince of life, Donald McLeod in his absolutely soul-stirring book on the cross of Christ says the prince of life goes back to his divine identity. He was not only the source of all life, he was life itself. All other life, verse 3, is from Him and all spiritual life is lived in Him. Verse 4, as such, Jesus alone has authority to pour out His life into death. But death could not hold Him because He's the Prince of Life. Like it might hold a conquered foe, Jesus chose the circumstances of His dying. Jesus chose when He would die. And in the same way, He chose at what moment He would take His life up again. Now, I don't know if this is like watertight, totally like for sure, for sure, but I'm kind of really solidly persuaded that it looks right. The beginning of the Gospel of John and the end of the Gospel of John have a lot of the same Greek words. One step forward, one step backward, a lot of the same Greek words. One more step forward, one more step backward, a lot of the same Greek words. That's called a chiasm. So A and A prime, B and B prime, C and C prime, D and D prime, and you just keep going. If the Gospel of John is set up that way, and I'm telling you, I've taken a look, and there's a lot of that going on. If you go to the middle of a chiasm, I'm not trying to get like Da Vinci Code crazy on Bible interpretation, but if you go to the middle of a chiasm, the main point is whatever is in the center. Guess what's in the center of the Gospel of John? If you do what I just said. For this reason, the Father loves me, Jesus said. Because I lay my life 
down so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. He's the king of life. Death is his bellboy. It's his concierge. He whistles and the dog comes. He is in total control of everything, including his own demise. And oh, by the way, when it's time for him to get up again from the dead, he says in John 10, I just do it. I want to say something about your life and the life of every other human who has ever or will ever live. When Jesus made you, verse 3, He stamped you. He embossed you. He engraved you. He carved into your soul something unique called the Imago Dei, the image of God. You are not God. You will never be God. There's a bunch of crazy theology that's repeating in our day that's been repeated in every generation of human history. There are no new things under the sun. There are no new lies. There's just new kind of spins on old lies. You're not God. You will never be deified. The Imago Dei does not mean you're Him. It means you're made to reflect Him. But something beautiful about the Imago Dei in you, and it's absolutely terrifying if you don't come to Jesus by faith. Something beautiful about the Imago Dei in you is that you're going to live forever. There's a very biblical sense in which it is accurate to say this sentence. You are eternal. But hear me clearly. Your eternality and Jesus' life, His eternality, are infinitely distinct. He is eternal in both directions. But that's actually an understatement. I mean, you think about eternally, eternality temporally, it doesn't work, but we can't think outside of time. You can't just say He's eternal in both directions, eternity past and eternity future. He's eternal omnidirectionally. You are eternal from the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb and that's part of the Imago Dei in you. Every person who has ever been conceived will live forever. The only question is where. That's what John's talking about in verse 4. Life is in Him. And eternal life for anybody who will ever have it is because they have been connected to the power source of the infinite life of Christ. They've been grafted into the vine. The nutrient of His eternality flows into your own eternal destiny. His life is resident to Himself. It's native. It's innate to who He is. It's owing to no one else. He is God, verse 1. He is the possessor of life, verse 4. Your eternal life is derivative. It comes from somewhere. Him. 1 Timothy 6, God alone possesses, here's a great Bible word, immortality. Only God has immortality. That's true in the way 1 Timothy 6 is saying it. It's not true definitively like in regards to no other person at any other time. He's immortal, unkillable, cannot die, immortal. He's immortal in the sense that it's impossible for him not to be. 
you're immortal in the sense that from the moment you were conceived for eternity, you will never cease to be. To be immortal is the inability to be mortal. To possess that quality in both directions is to be God. That's verse 4. He has life. Now think about something, something wonderful about Jesus with me. If you and I dip the little thimble of our life into the ocean of his fullness by faith, and we pull out of Jesus, as it were, all that we would ever need to be totally full for endless eternities of eternal life. Something wonderful about him is though billions have come to him through the ages and put the thimble of their life into the ocean of his fullness, he's never depleted. He remains infinitely full. He's so full we can't even conceive of his fullness, but of his fullness, verse 16, we've all received and he's still full. What I've been trying to say under point one, in him was life, is that the one who possesses life has uniquely endowed you with something you don't get to choose. You will live forever. Somewhere. Nothing you ever do will ever snuff out your existence. Eternal life or eternal death are our only two options. The aberrant theologies like annihilationism, one day God will just poof hell out of existence into oblivion, would be what everybody there would wish would happen. You'll never cease to be. If you could peer deep enough into the eyes of another man's soul, you would see in every person you've ever known, and they would see in you, an endless future eternity. So our first point, in Him was life. The Lord Jesus is the exclusive source for life eternal for any man. No one comes to the Father but by Him because He's the way, the truth, and the life. Number two, verse four, the life was the light of men. So easy to get this one inverted, right? When we quote it, we're like, wait, was it light and life or life and light? Well, let me not add to your confusion and kind of mess up your Bible drill. The life, that's the first point, was the light of men. I believe, like I said about life, that John is particularly thinking of spiritual light in this verse. It's the way he's going to talk about light for the remainder of the gospel. To be united to Christ is to have a tsunami of light pouring into your soul for eternity with the life of Jesus being that light. When John writes his first epistle sometime after, uh, I think he wrote this gospel, he's still meditating on this truth. He can't get over it. So John, with his little quill dipped in the ink, grabs you by your collar and pulls you to the face of Jesus, and he says it again. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. God, one of the three God is statements, God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. So what's the consequence of him flooding your soul? Next verse. 
If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So taking this phrase in verse 4 to be speaking of, a, speaking of spiritual life and spiritual light, one more J.C. Ryle worth listening to carefully. It is those and those only who have followed Christ as their light who have lived before God and reached heaven. There has never been any spiritual life or light enjoyed by men excepting from Christ. D.A. Carson, thinking about this same phrase, the life was the light of men, he says, the light is not only revelation bound up with creation, verse 3, let there be light, but with salvation. Let's think about that. Now we know, we've kind of been even nominally, novicely acquainted with our Bibles, that John wants us to be thinking right now in verse 4 and 5 about Genesis 1. We know that because he starts the same way Genesis starts, in the beginning, in the beginning. We've also looked at the fact last week that as Christ is the creator, there are seven days of creation, six days and a day of rest, And in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, going to chapter 2, verse 11, there's seven days of the life of Jesus. So in the beginning, in the beginning, seven days, seven days. He clearly wants us to be thinking about Genesis 1 and 2. Just like Genesis opens with darkness. Now, not the first verse, but the second. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 2, darkness was over the surface of the deep. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, in Him was life. The life was the light. What did God do to the darkness in Genesis 1-2? Verse 3, He spoke, let there be light. And it was. And as we said last week, the Creator Jesus, who said let there be light, exerted zero energy to create the far-off quasars and galaxies and all the intricacies of the beauty of this world. Zero energy. He never got tired. He just spoke it and it was. But in redemption, the Creator Jesus became incarnate, robed Himself in our flesh, walked through this sin-torn world with perfect obedience to God, loving the Lord as God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself, never failing to uphold the law, and the reward we gave him is that our Creator was crucified for our crimes, not his own, against God, so that we could be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God and rose again the third day, proving that he is an adequate Redeemer, even for rebels like us. Genesis 1, let there be light. And it was. John 1, The light came into the darkness and it had zero effect. Here he spoke. There he poured out omnipotence. All his power, all his energy, all his effort, everything that belongs to the resources of God was gathered up and packed into Jesus of Nazareth. Colossians 2 In Him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All of God showed up and we were like, 
When's this service going to end? How blind must we be? When the king of glory is standing in front of your face, the one that the angels ceaselessly praise, all of heaven's attention, Revelation 4, 5, 7, 9, 19, 20, 21, is riveted on Jesus. Endless seas of innumerable hosts of worshipers, nameless, faceless creatures and redeemed humanity focusing on the brilliant face of Jesus. And that same Jesus is what John is saying to us, came and stood in front of you. And you yawned and looked at your clock and walked away. What does this mean? There's a string of verses right here in John chapter 1 that speak to the reality of Jesus being the light. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, verse 9. All speak of Jesus as the light. Verse 9, we're told something positive. He enlightens every man. Verse 5, we're told something negative. The darkness did not comprehend or overcome we'll get there in a minute so clearly John's focusing on how the life of Jesus shines I already said present tense on humanity and while we may yawn and check our clock and walk away disinterested in heaven's favorite while we may be bored with the one that as we sit here, the angels now praise. While he may have almost no effect on us, it would seem, it doesn't mean he has no effect on us. As the light, you may not respond to him as you ought, and if you were in your right mind, as you would. But he's exposing you for who you are. You can't avoid the fact that he's the light. You don't turn the switch on by the power of your might. The switch is on and has been from eternity. But verse 11 says, He came to His own people, this is Israel particularly, and His own did not receive Him. So not every man, verse 9, is enlightened in the same way. We're all enlightened. We're all exposed. We're all under the light. But not all in the same way. Light serves so many purposes. Richard Phillips' commentary pointed out multiple ways. Light reveals, light heals, light guides, light gives life. Like chlorophyll and the green plants and the photosynthesis process that you learned about in science in middle school. Light is literally the food of a plant. Jesus is the most necessary nutrient of your soul. But I think the primary meaning John's after right here, the life was the light of men, is redemption. But in order to save you, we say it this way a lot, please don't let it be white noise, the gospel's got to tear you all the way down before it can even begin to build you up. You have to be exposed. If you've never felt dread in the presence of the King of Glory, You haven't encountered him yet. I'm talking about bone-jarring 
trembling. I'm talking about Peter, professional fisherman, standing on the front of his boat, turning around and looking at the Lord of glory and saying, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Why would Peter say that to Jesus? Because the creator of the far off galaxies commanded the fish in that sea to get into Peter's net. And he instantly realized this isn't a man only. He's truly man. But this is my maker. And he was gripped by the stain of his rebellion in the presence of his king. The light exposes you. And if you hadn't been exposed, you hadn't been saved. Jesus reveals what's true about God. And he reveals what's true about us. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Like light, he exposes everything plainly. You know who God's going to sanctify? If you're already a Christian, you know who God's going to save if you're not yet one? The real you. Not the perceived version of you that you want everybody to think you are. He knows you inside and out. And if you come to him with the facade on, he ain't tricked. The judge of the thoughts and intentions of our heart is the living logos. Hebrews says it that way, doesn't it? The Word of God, ha-logos, same word we get here in John 1, is living. Same word we get in John 1, 4, in Him was life. John, uh, Hebrews 4 says, the Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. What does this logos do to us? Judges the thoughts and motives, the intentions of our heart. And verse 13 makes it worse. There's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of Him with whom we must do. The one to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. That's what John's talking about. He's the light. And there are no shadows into which you may run to hide from His El Roe, the all-seeing eye of God. To encounter Jesus truly is to encounter the one before whom Isaiah shielded his face and put his nose in the dirt in light of the horror of his own sin and the sins of his fellow man. When Isaiah, who thought he had a pretty competent walk with God, encountered him firsthand in chapter 6, the blinding holiness of the enthroned Jesus. That's Isaiah 6. You know how we know that? John chapter 12 tells us in verse 41 and 42 that Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne. The blinding holiness of the enthroned Jesus was the inevitable source of exposing Isaiah's sinfulness. Has this happened to you? He doesn't expose you to destroy you. He exposes you to save you. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Are you the worst sinner you know? You ready to get on your gadget and comment on everybody's post about how simple everybody else is in the whole world? And pile on with the avalanche of absurdities. 
Are you the most sinful person you know? I'm not saying have you sinned more than anybody you know. I'm saying are you in touch with your depravity? Do you have an awareness that you're capable of any rebellion that you've ever heard of times 10,000? And the only restraint is the grace of God. Has He exposed you? Calvin's Institutes, which are a must-read in your lifetime. Start now, you'll finish in a couple decades, but get going. Calvin's Institutes have two parts. And it stood the test of time for hundreds of years for good reason. The two parts are knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. That's what John's doing in verse 4. You can't know you unless you know you in relationship to Jesus. Everybody out here trying to find themselves? Come to Jesus. He'll show you exactly who you are. Who He made you to be. What's been corrupted in us by the fall. Inherited sin from our parents. Our original sin. But also our actual sin. Our own rebellion. Which compounds our guilt in front of God. He'll show you not only the bad things you've done. But He'll show you the best thing you did for all the wrong reasons. He'll show you that in your most holy 10 seconds, the best prayer you've ever prayed, the most significant quiet time you've ever had, the most exhilarating worship experience you've ever had personally or corporately, all of that only compounds your guilt before God unless you have a Redeemer. He'll show you that your best works are according to Romans, filthy rags in His sight. The light shines and you can't escape. Knowledge of God, knowledge of self, Calvin Institute, that's John 1.4. In Him is life, and the life is the light of men. But on the other hand, those with a biblical view, not perfect, not exhaustive, none of us are there, we're all just like, I picture it, I don't know why my, my mom and my grandmother had a kiln in a little back shed of our house, and they would fire ceramics in the kiln. And I don't know why, but one of my many oddities is I would love to get the little scalpel and scrape the edge where the mold of the whatever being fired uh, was put together. You know, they make it in two parts. They put it together from the mold, and it's got the little rim or edge on it. So the little scalpel, kind of like the dentist uses to get the plaque off your teeth, the little scalpel, you scrape it and try to get it as smooth as you can so the finished product doesn't look like it was two pieces but one. And this is how we are coming to Jesus. Our earth is gigantic, but it's a tiny little speck of dust in comparison to the sun. The sun is a million times. You could take the earth and just pack it inside the sun a million times. But the sun is tiny compared to every little twinkle, twinkle little star you've ever seen. You could take our sun and put it inside any star you've ever seen a million times. Jesus made all that. And, and here we are, sitting in a gymnasium on a small speck of dust called earth. Nobody on earth even knows we're here. <laughs> and we got our little scalpel out against a supernova. The biggest stars our scientists have ever discovered. And we got that little scalpel, and we're like, <laughs> we get a little dust. That, nobody knows them exhaustively. But those with a biblical view, are you with me? Of the grandeur and truth of Jesus are easy to detect. They're easy to spot. 
How do you know if your view of Jesus corresponds with what God has revealed to us of Him in His Word? The inevitable consequence is you have a correspondingly accurate view of yourself. Prideful people are like one long parade of a kindergarten short and tail class saying, we don't know who Jesus is. Flowing from His eternal life, He shines the light of God upon men. He cannot do otherwise. It's simply who He is. It's not only an activity that He does. In Him was life, and the life was the light. Not does the light. He is the light. He is Hebrews 1.3. And there's nothing we're ever going to be able to do to change it. And His people don't want to. He's the effulgence of God. He just outshines the brilliant brightness of God. He is the brightness of His glory, the brilliance of God to men. So the themes of John 1.4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John can't stop talking this way. I've told you this 36 times. Let me give you one of them. John 8.12, then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now here's our third and final consideration. It's verse 5. I couldn't come up with snazzy points, so it's just the verses. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Up until now, verses 1 to 4, John has exclusively used past tense. But here he speaks of a present tense reality. Shines. Right now, Right here, when you were asleep last night, when you go to bed tonight, and for all of eternity, the light shines in the darkness, continually, ever-present, no escape. We've all been exposed. There are no shadows into which we may run to hide from the reality of Christ. Your entire life, from the moment you were conceived until this present day, and for the remainder of your days, and even into eternity, you are living your life right in front of the face of Jesus of Nazareth. Always. Even more invasively, it's not just your actions, but it's your thoughts. And it's not just your mind, it's your heart, your motivations. Everything is laid bare before Him. And He's not only our examiner, He's our judge. What kind of darkness, the light shines in the darkness, what kind of darkness does does John have in mind here? The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it we'll deal with comprehend in a moment let's just deal with the darkness i believe again he's referring to the darkness of sinful men but not only individual men the collective god belittling god rejecting totality of sinful humanity He's not only talking about one person or a collective group of people. He's talking about the world systems. John loves to use double meaning in many of his words. One of them is world. God so loved the world. The same human author wrote this sentence. Do not love the world. The same author wrote this sentence. The whole world has gone after him. So in one sense, he's talking about a ball of dirt. The planet. In another sense, he's talking about humans. In another sense, he's talking about the world system of evil. Then he writes about in 1 John chapter 5, the whole world 
lies under the power of the evil one. Wait, wait, which news outlet, though, doesn't, to which that doesn't apply? Let's see. The whole world is under the spell. Everybody. You're born that way. If you don't come to the light of Christ, you're not ever going to not be that way. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That's the darkness he's talking about. The whole world is under the influence of Satan. Every person, all collective groups of people, the entire world system is walking according to the prince of the power of the air. It's that kind of darkness that he has in mind. The only light that has invaded that cavernous void of depravity, the only light is the Lord Jesus. So now let's deal with the last part of verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The word, the New American Standard, which I'm using, renders comprehend, translated that same way by the King James, but the ESV, NIV, Christian Standard, others render it as overcome. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So is it understand it, or is it overpower it? Is it comprehend it or overthrow it? Richard Phillips translates it as extinguish, which is more like overcome than comprehend. I love what D.A. Carson had to say about this verse. By the way, I, called him, I referred to him last week as the greatest nerd in the kingdom. Um, he's smart. Reads 500 books a year and writes them faster than I can read them. D.A. Carson said about this verse in his excellent commentary on Gospel of John. This verse is a masterpiece in planned ambiguity. Thank you, D.A. Carson. <laughs> Basically, which one is it? Yes. Just as darkness is not a thing, darkness is the absence of a thing. Darkness isn't something. Darkness is nothing. Darkness is the absence of light. When Genesis 1-2 says darkness was over the surface of the deep, and God said, let there be light, then there was a thing. There were like photons and wavelengths, and then there was something. So also John shows us the light of the world in John 1-5 is shouting, let there be light. He is singing let there be light. He is preaching. Let there be light. He's commanding, let there be light. And the darkness of sinful humanity is... Big deal, Jesus. I'll get around to you when I'm good and ready. I got a little bit more living that I need to do. Maybe after this season of life, I'll come talk to you, Jesus. Carson said the darkness is not only in John's Gospel, the absence of light. It's not just morally neutral. It's not only nothing. Darkness isn't just a void. It's active evil. Carson says positive evil. You want to know how John talks about darkness? And he's not talking about what happens when you flip a light switch. He's talking about people. John 3.19, John 8.12, John 12.35, John 12.36, 1 John 1, 1.5, 1.6, 2.8. 2.9, 2.11. You know what John thinks about darkness? Evil. Evil. Active, 
rebellion against your Maker. Both renderings, overcome or comprehend, have very strong, I think, contextual and grammatical support. How are we supposed to translate? They mean something different. I can see how you go both ways with the translation, not to take you all the way into the grammatical study, overcome, which is similar to extinguish, is supported by the fact that this word, katalambano, is used only one other time in John's whole gospel. Chapter 12. And everybody agrees that in that one other occurrence, it means overtake, overcome. Jesus said, for a little while longer you have the light among you, walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. John 12, 35. So there's good reason to say it should be overcome or overtake or extinguish. The darkness didn't do anything to the light. It didn't damage the light. It didn't squash or squelch or put the light out. There's good reason because of that one other use. There's also good reason to say maybe John meant comprehend or understand or grasp like the New American Standard and King James render it. Because in the context of John 1, and one of the rules of Bible interpretation is context is king. Context is king. So if I say a word to you like blue, you have no idea what I mean unless I put it in context. Because I wasn't actually just thinking of a color, I was thinking of a feeling. I'm feeling blue. Do you see? Context is king. So in John 1, I can see why people would say comprehend or understand because in 1, 10, and 11, he came to his own. His own did not receive him. He was in the world. The world was made through him, verse 10, and the world did not know him. So there's an understanding, comprehending. So which one is it? We'll close this way. Both. (laughs) Both. I agree with Carson, masterful ambiguity. John does it all over the place. John is one of the most simple books to read. If you know three vocabulary words, you can understand John's gospel. Love, light, life. If you know those three words, you can read John. And the most serious students of the Bible have had their minds just wrapped with the depths of John at the same time. Masterful ambiguity. While you have the light, John 12, 36, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Do you hear the admonition? Believe so that you may become. That means the light has a transformative effect in the lives of all who believe and receive the the life of Christ. If I told you, as we've used the illustration here before on a handful of occasions, that I got ran over by a semi-truck on my way to the gathering this morning, I hope you would think this man's lost his mind. But if you tell me, or I tell you, the king of the universe has tornadoed through my soul with his glory and saving mercy, and there's no effect, my life looks just the same, you should be asking even more questions than how I look semi put together if I just got hit by a semi. We are so sinful, we are so blind in our sin, that seeing and receiving the obvious that Jesus is the divine redeemer of sinners 
is impossible apart from spirit-wrought regeneration, the new birth, being made alive. The Scriptures repeatedly speak of fallen humanity as having eyes but not able to see. That's why they didn't receive the light when He stood in front of them. We're born in sin. We're incapable of comprehending Christ Jesus for who He is. So the next verse in John 12, after the only other use of katalambano, the very next verse says, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. There's the admonition. Believe to become. Ephesians 5.8 underscores the same truth. You were, not you did, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. You become something else. God breathes into us spiritual life. He takes up residence in us and from the inside out, He continually, progressively transforms us into the image of His Son. We'll never reach perfection on this side of glory, but there's an obvious progression of Christ's likeness, hatred for our sin, love to the Savior, love for our fellow man, special love for the kindred, the the believers, that happens to every Christian. You don't have to create it. You don't have to make it happen. It's Part and parcel to John twelve thirty six. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. You're like a chip off the old block. You look like the light. Believe in the light. Why? So that you'll look like the light. So that you'll become like him. So that he'll be the firstborn among many brothers. You know how an older brother and the younger siblings and somebody will say, to the other, oh, so-and-so, your brother, you look just like him. That's the point. Believe in the light so you'll look like the light of the world. That Ephesian passage goes on to say, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Isn't that what light does? Two applications. We'll land the plane. How are you going to do what Jesus demanded that you do? How are you going to let your light so shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven? How are you going to do what we're all commanded to do? Or are you going to join the vast majority of humanity in their spiritual blindness? Not comprehending, not understanding, trying to extinguish, trying to overtake Jesus. You go in the way a bunch of spiritually dead people are going for an eternity of damnation, are you going to be a Matthew 5.16? Let your light so shine before men so that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The Bible wasn't written, here's our application, to be picked apart in a laboratory to be dealt with by the minds of disinterested observers. This living and active book exposes us. We don't read it, it reads us. We don't inform it, it informs us. And it leads us to a saving knowledge of Jesus and propels us to worship Him and to live like He matters. So when we come to passages like John 1, 1-5, let's not lose sight of the vastness in front of us. Before we start saying, like I was trying to conclude last week, so what do I do about this? The answer is nothing. Just receive Him. 
If you focus on being who God wants you to be, be holy, for I am holy, he'll give you plenty to do. Let's just bask. Let's receive again this magnificent and magnanimous Redeemer that the best conception we've ever had of Him is but a fraction's fraction of the totality of who He is. What we're looking at in John 1, 1-5 is meant to stun us and stagger us. To propel us back, to catapult us back into the third heaven so that we praise our Maker and our Redeemer. So meditating on those opening five verses, one commentator said, I cannot close these notes on the opening verses of St. John's Gospel without expressing my deep sense of utter inability of any human commentator to enter fully into the vast and sublime truths which this passage, verse 1-5, to contains. But after saying all I have said, I feel as if I have only faintly touched the surface of the passage. There is something here which nothing but the light of eternity will ever fully reveal. You know when a real Christian hears, you're never going to fully understand it? No Christian says, so why try thinking about it? Every Christian says, just pull me a little closer. Just let me take one more step toward Jesus. Give me more of an accurate apprehension of who he fully is, who he truly is, and all that he promises to be for me. So the application is believe in the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and you will have life in his name. So I can't let you go without saying what I'm going to try to say every time God ever gives me an opportunity to preach, whether it's from this pulpit or a street corner, prison or my own kitchen table. If you don't come to Him, John actually tells you the reason. John 5.40, You, Jesus said, You were unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. Nobody's ever going to get to say to Jesus, He didn't do enough. Another reason John's Gospel gives you if if you're not going to come to him is because the enemy of your soul is cackling as you lay on the ground in the cesspool of your sin and he's kicking you while you're down. And John 10 says he is stealing, killing, and destroying you. And he's laughing the whole time that you're running from Jesus. He loves that you hate him. The greatest need of your life is also expressed in John's Gospel 10.28. If you don't have Jesus... Oh, don't you want this? Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. When you give your life to the Lord Jesus, the Bible says something happens to you. Instantaneous translation from one position to another. Instantaneous declaration. Just like Philip was translated from the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion boom, over to Azotus. We don't know how it happened. Just, he's gone. Same thing happens spiritually to every true convert. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son where there's radiant light. How does salvation happen? How does God save a soul? Do you know the Bible's answer should cause our hearts to skip a beat? It should cause us to lay our hand over our mouth? The Bible's answer for how it happens is the light of the world 
had darkness fall over him in unimaginable agony. Listen to Luke 23, 44. About the sixth hour, when Jesus is on the cross, that corresponds to noon. About the sixth hour, John 23, 44, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's about 3 p.m. The darkest night that anybody's ever experienced. Look, every last one of us have issues. We all have challenges. We all have deep pain, brokenness, sin that we've committed, sin that's been committed against us. All of us. Every last one of us have deep, deep, deep brokenness and darkness. But the darkest night ever experienced by any human was the darkness that Jesus endured on the cross of Calvary to save our souls when the infinite Jesus who is life and whose life is the light of men endured an eternity's worth of wrath in a finite amount of time so that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God forever to enjoy the glory of His presence for endless eternities in the new heaven and new earth. That's the darkest night of all. Would you continue to live in your sinful, dark deadness when the light of life is available to you? Jesus said in John 12, I've come as light into the world. Why, Jesus? So that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in darkness. Well, I've been promising for too long that I was going to quit, so... Skip, skip, skip. Long my imprisoned spirit lay... Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us the greatest treasure in the universe, that you sent heaven's favorite, that the light of the world has come. We thank you that you have said very plainly, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You said that everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light because we don't want our deeds exposed. That described all of us at one point. But thank you God that you have saved some and at such a cost, the death of your Son to take our sins on Himself as our atoning sacrifice. And in His resurrection, you say, He who practices the truth comes to the light so that His deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Cause us to be the Ephesians 5.14 people. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Cause the light of Christ to shine. And in the arena of His luminance, His light, His glory, His brilliance, His saving love, His all-sufficiency, His power in our weakness, in His presence we ask that you would cause the things of earth to grow strangely dim. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name.